Friday, March 1st, which is this Friday if you're listening to this episode the week it comes out, the Weird Sisters will be playing over at the East Room with the Shadow Tones and Black Moon Mother. This will be the first time that I get to see them with their new singer, Audrey. She sings in Sister Man. Isaac told me that they have been working on harmonies and other cool shit like that, so I think this is going to be pretty exciting to see them. I'll try and take some video and post some stuff. I'm sure they'll be I'm sure they'll be in full Weird Sisters fashion for this show. Also, uh, if you are so inclined, subscribe to the show. If you already haven't, leave a little review on iTunes if you get the chance. Tell a friend. Other than that, thank you for listening. Uh, feel free to reach out to me either on Instagram, which is the underscore Poptimist, or on Facebook. Um, you just search for the Poptimist or me, Taylor Berryman, or through email you can reach out. It's the Poptimist Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Here's the show. Let's go. Welcome to the Poptimist. Today we have Val Lupescu. Val, thank you for coming on. Man, truly my pleasure, Taylor. It's been a minute since we've seen each other. Yeah, for sure, but it's great to have you here. Yes, man. for sure. And just a little background, you are a guitar player. Um, yes. And you play at the Tuesday Night Pro Blues Jam in Caribbean Blue mm-hmm. with our good friend Kara Lipman. That's right. Um, and you came to America when? You're originally from Romania? Yeah, well, my full name is Valentin Adrian Lupescu. Uh-huh. So most of, you know, my American friends call me Val. Some of my Romanian friends call me Bali. But I came to the States in the mid-80s. So I did have the pleasure of growing up in Romania. And it was a tumultuous time because it was during Ceausescu's era. So we came to South Florida where my uncle had a barbershop. And it was a progressive move. My grandma came here first. And then we came over. So, I had enough of my early life spent in Romania to get a taste of what that era was like. How old were you when you came over? Uh, yeah, 13. Okay. Yeah. So, you had a pretty good idea of things going on. What were some of the things that you were seeing when you were a kid in Romania? Well, I think like with most kids, the culture that you grow up in, you assume not to be normal. So, looking back, grow, you know, because I've lived more of my life here in the States, I'd say that I'm only giving this just as a background, so it wasn't a horrible place to live because that's all I knew. There was tremendous joy, and there was suffering when I look back, but I don't think as a kid I realized it. Um, specifically, we had, at the time, my understanding was that Ceausescu, the president, was trying to pay off a lot of debt, so he took a lot of food off the shelf. So people were allotted only certain rations. So like if you wanted milk, you couldn't just go in a grocery store and buy a pint of milk or a gallon of milk. You had to wait. And was it per week, per month? How did that man, work? I don't remember the details of that. I remember that it was basically you come and get it. There's an early queue that forms. It's 5 or 6 a.m. You wait in line with two or 300 people. You get the stuff, and when it sells out, it's gone for the day or so. So I did have to wait in long queues for food with my grandma, for example, and my mom. You know, especially things that we take for granted, like you just walk into Publix and you just have this plethora of food everywhere. That was not the case. You walk into... Romanian grocery store, and it was very few selections. So why was there so much debt at that period of time? Do you know why or what was going on before that? I really should go back and study more that period of Romania. I know that Ceausescu was trying back, I think, probably some 
accumulated debt from the West and other countries that were paid to Romania. And I think he might have done a fairly decent job of that, from what I hear, although it's not the best way of going back and paying debt. But however he did it, he took it, it came, the people bore the brunt of that repayment plan. So therefore, whatever debt he was paying to whomever, whether it was the West or China or Russia, the people were suffering because we didn't have the basic foods. But again, just to give the devil his due, it's not like I suffered tremendously under that, but some people did, you know? Sure. And looking back, I could totally see how it was bad. But when you grow up in there, again, you don't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. I, when you're a kid, life is just kind of how it is. Yeah. Your only context is that. What were some of the similarities that you noticed between life in Romania and life in the U.S. and how are they different? Well, the similarities, I think, are just human interests and people are very, I think, universal across the globe, especially as I travel, I get to see that. Um, but I would say the difference is, I think, if you're referring specifically to a time, to looking back at it now, what a time when I was like, if you were ever asked me at 13 what I would have been. Yeah, well, what did 13-year-old that? Well, I think, I could best reference it when I came here, I think it was a big culture shock. Not the human connection, but just the availability of things. Especially in South Florida in that time period. Yeah, and I was always, you know... At that time, in the mid-80s, you know, MTV, that was like, wow, we didn't have that in Romania. You know, we had like three or four channels, mostly government-controlled. Um, toys, for example, like Star Wars, you know, back in time, it was like a thing called G.I. Joe for those old farts like me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we had Transformers, and like seeing these toys, it was just like, wow. It really felt like uh, coming to a, like a heavenly land, like a, like a dream world that, wow. Going to the store every day and finding like all the things that I would consider like stuff I'd have to wait in line for, like bread, fresh bread, milk, meat, bananas, for example. You know, these having that in abundance was quite surreal. And culturally, too, uh, you know, I was treated a little bit uh, not as an outsider, but more just like probably more like slightly different because of my accent. Sure. And I went to a middle school at Olsen, which was um, very diverse, and my accent definitely made me stand out because it basically sounded like Count Dracula. Uh-huh. I learned English in Romania, but I had a heavy Eastern European accent, uh -huh. so <laughs> it was fun, but I ended up kind of losing that pretty quickly. But I think the most different thing I saw was just perspective on life, like the things that I was like overwhelmed to see, people were taking for granted because they didn't know otherwise. Um, also, I was amazed by the freedom people had of action, of speech, of independence, which was always like a striking thing for me, that you could be independent without suffering consequences. Was that something, were there consequences suffered back in Romania for speaking oh, yeah. out or is it speaking out against the government or what, what was it exactly? Yeah, it was definitely speaking out. And again, this is my perspective. I left there when I was 13 and... Uh, the city that I grew up in, it was a city called Timisoara, and actually I've went there a couple times since I left, with my wife, twice, and in Timisoara, they, after I left, they found a series of mass graves outside the city, and without getting too dark, there were thousands of bodies allegedly discovered in these graves that were placed there by the secret police. 
Um, I don't know the level of informing that went on. I don't know if it was as bad as the Stasi in East Germany where people would rat each other out like where a neighbor was an informant. Sure. Yeah. But I don't think it was much better because there was always a fear lurking in our minds like don't say stuff that you don't want someone to repeat to the secret police or... So there was always this almost like Orwellian fear of Big Brother. Like you have to watch what you said in public because you couldn't just tweet about the president in Romania and get away with it. It was like it was very compartmentalized. Like you were very careful of what to say and when to say it and to whom to say it. So it's kind of similar to not not exactly what we're experiencing right now in America, but we're heading more towards that where you really have to watch what you say and it's not even anything about the government I feel like it's person to person there's this sense of we can't talk to each other anymore and there's this social barrier social contract that's broken down I feel in America that, that's very sad uh, one thing that makes me think of is, is Mr. Rogers you know love your neighbor everybody's kind of different and I think one of the beautiful things about about America, kind of like what you're saying, is the fact that we all are different and we can learn to coexist. But there's something that's been broken down that feels like it's missing from the time of now from when I was a kid, mm -hmm. even in the 90s. What would you say that is and why has it happened? Well, in my opinion, because I've had a chance to see both Romania and America, I think part of that is just the importance of valuing the other person's point of view and cherishing the fact that you can share this freely in this country at least on a personal level that you can you don't have to agree with what the other person's saying but you can at least hear them out and hopefully through that method of communication both of you might learn something so it's starting off I think in an ideal place it would be that you're hoping to learn something from whoever you're talking to and that starts off with a with a basic presumption of goodwill, of charity, like, hey, um, we're two human beings communicating, hopefully in a logical and reasonable manner, even if it's a light conversation. We're here to enjoy each other's company and learn from each other. But I think some of the goodwill gets broken down when words tend to be manipulated and we don't start off with um, intention of goodwill. Whenever people are trying to control communications, like in Romania, for example, where you're afraid of speaking your mind, uh, whenever there's overt political correctness that may have a really good origin, a good reason to be there, that has become twisted to make it a, one afraid of saying something that's objectively true with repercussions. But I think overall, it's just where you're starting from in conversation. I think that the internet has played a role in that too, because it's everything all the time. It's always in our face. So like even right now, we can pull out our phones and find something horrible that's happening in the world. Yeah. Like you can see, there's something unnatural about being able to see at any point someone getting their head chopped off by a machete. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we are prepared for that. As human beings, I think we're very resilient. And of course, at various points in human history, that was just a lay of the land. Someone would come up on a boat and then your life was over. But there is an element now that we can't speak to each other and we're monitoring each other so closely. It's almost like a digital Cold War is happening. 
uh, throughout the entire world. And it's people versus people. I, now it seems that we are starting to realize that the people who are in power, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what their political situation is, is that they are also human beings. When 50 years ago, there was this huge divide between the people at the top and the people at the bottom. And that still exists. But now it's just always in our face. How do we have a social code with the power of the internet now? Is there any way to even do that? It's this truth serum almost. Yeah, if I think if we could answer that, we could probably put design an app for it. <laughs> but I think it really depends on whether we can take the time to imagine the person that we're interacting with. Let's say I'm going to just use, let's say, responding to a, a tweet. Do, if you're responding, if you're replying to a tweet, for example, that goes against your grain or something that really ticks you off, would you say the same to that person if you're facing like you and I are now? Like, would you say with the same aggressive spirit? And I think some of this distancing of the internet and also the democracy of information, that illusion of distance removes that compassion from the conversation. Where you, because you're anonymous or no one knows who you are when you reply to that post, that makes the person feel like their responsibility and accountability for their comment kind of goes away. Sure. So I think that's one of the things that's definitely missing that you wouldn't have in a genuine one-on-one conversation. Even if you're not agreeing, you're less likely to say the things you would say in a negative social media context. But at the same token, you can also say that for the good things that the internet can do in terms of communications, if there's someone missing, for example, like when you know, Ashley was missing and we had the post that Kara compassionately did and shared by thousands of people. Sure. Which shows the power, if we're willing to take this medium of communication to unite us in a community instead of divide us. But I think it sets a new ethical precedent where we really have to remember that if, since this stuff doesn't go away, you know, I don't know how long Twitter's going to save this for, or Facebook, or Instagram, but these comments, if you regret it 10 or 20 years later, they're still there to haunt you, as we see now. So oh, yeah. I, I think the, the, the basic rule is, do you, first I would say one is, do you want this comment to live forever? And you be remembered by this comment? And be like, or two, you know, would you say this to this person in the same aggressive tone to their face now? It makes me think of nuance. Because, so I, from my own personal experience, when I was a kid, I had Facebook at like 15 years old. And when you can you imagine having Facebook at 15 years old and the things that you would have said or put online, even just about music or what you thought about life or how deep you thought you were at that age or whatever. And um, there's no nuance in it. And I was thinking about millennials and kind of my generation and all of that recently, and it made me really think about how millennials are kind of like the second coming of the baby boomers for better and for worse. Mm. There's a, a lot of huge cultural things and shifts that have happened that our generation, of course, has championed through the power of the internet. But there are also some, some downsides to it. Like, you know, I, I don't want to get deep, too deep into baby boomers or anything like that, but... Um, we don't have experience and we have all of this knowledge. Mm-hmm. 
And knowledge without experience, context, or nuance can be dangerous. What do you think about nuance and it eroding in American culture? Well, I think that's very important to bring up nuance. And I would say that if we want to define nuance for, to, to put it in everyday context, is choosing to look at things, and especially in this area of conversation, from a deeper place where it's not always a binary, one or zeros, A or B answer, that there's areas of conversation that may require some further research, um, that there's areas in our daily interaction with people where we may not have the answer, but we require us to go further and dig deeper. And I think the newest conversations of the past were based, especially when people are talking about deeper things, you know, they were based on a little bit more education on an individual level. So it's almost hard to have real nuance on a subject, like if somebody were to talk about wine, for example. And I'm only bringing this up because I'm not a wine snob. But a person that's educated in wine will be able to tell about the terroir, where the wine grew, all the regions, these things that would bring a lot of background and refine nuanced details to the conversation, where someone that just goes and gets a $5 bottle of wine and just has a glass night, would never have that background. And their conversation together on a subject, one person would have the background to provide a nuanced discussion, whereas the other person just doesn't have enough information to add that delicate flavor to the conversation. Sure. So I would say, I think, depending on the subject, knowing more and be willing to learn out of the conversation would add more nuance, because that creates a back and forth rather than just a simple answer. Everyone's very polarized and also kind of closed off today. Not to make it a blanket statement, mm -hmm. I'm guilty of it too, yeah. of just hearing something and making up your mind. And it was a couple weeks ago, whenever that whole thing happened with those kids from Covington, Mm -hmm. where it was, it came out that like the kid actually didn't go get in that guy's face or anything like that. And the guy came up to him. There was like this huge thing on Twitter where people were basically trying to incite violence and dox mm -hmm. this kid and release all of his info and all of that. And everyone wanted to just turn it automatically into a political statement when it wasn't necessarily even political. Like the way that I saw it was this older guy and this young kid. Yeah. Kid kind of seems smarmy. I'll give them that. Like he, like fifteen year old kids are stupid. Like yeah. they they just don't have have any context for anything. Well, especially a whole bunch of them. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Together in one place. Yeah. I wouldn't make. I can't imagine me making extremely wise decisions with a bunch of my friends at fifteen. No. On a field trip, especially. And another way that I really feel nuance is important right now is grading people on a curve mm -hmm. on the internet. If you're 35 and saying stupid things, you should be held a little bit more accountable than a 15-year-old, just like you would in normal society. Like if there was some 15-year-old some kid that was talking to us and he was saying a bunch of stuff because he just didn't know, we would kind of let him off the hook or talk to him or something like that. But someone who's 35 and they're saying really ignorant things, like what can you really do about that? Is there anything you can do about that? Yeah, I think individually, I think we can. I think, unfortunately, there's always this power dynamic with democracy and democracy of information that we can share things, you know, put upload whatever context we want, like on YouTube and tweet whatever. But 
when people fear, fear, feel that their particular power lies in how they can demonize a person, then it's going to be up to them to pull back from that. And unfortunately, we're somewhat at a peculiar place because while we can still do all this, there's repercussions. And it seems like there's no forgiveness in public action. And with a poor kid like that, he's unfortunately going to be haunted by this in some way for the rest of his life, life for just doing something that was really unwise. And I think you're right. I think we need to... It's, it's got to be a case-by-case verdict rather than lumping everybody in one pot. Good guys versus bad guys. Yeah, because the thing is, you know, I mean, I'm a huge fan of science, especially neuroscience. And, we, you know, and the research shows that the human brain, especially the part of the brain that can make logical decisions, you know, the prefrontal cortex doesn't mature until you're like 25 to 30. So you can't hold someone to the same accountability for the decisions in, you know, for their immaturity, you know, at someone of 25 when they're only 15. They, they may just not cognitively have the mental development to know better. Not capable yet. So I think it's somewhat unwise to demonize a child for the same crime as someone who's 25 or 35. But in that case, I would say the burden lays upon, you know, the person. If someone is instigating stuff on Twitter and then they're getting, you know, a negative reply, then I would say they have asked for it. Yeah, totally. But, Absolutely. I mean, I would say that it's really upon us. Like, the reason I wouldn't reply to their comment, even though, like, there's many times you'd start a tweet or a reply and you just erase it. Oh, totally, yeah. And yes. mostly for me, especially in a context like Facebook, when I see something that I really want to chime in, it's like, do I really want to answer this thread of comments for the next day or so and have that lead off to side threads of flame wars over something that's really that would be over in a two-minute face-to-face conversation. Well, not only that, I do feel anytime someone engages in that polarized thing online, there's something else going on in their life that they're not addressing. Something within them. It's, it's in a way, mental illness or some kind of personality flaw or some kind of something that someone is not dealing with, they display it loud and clear on the internet. Like front and center, those are those are those are the people that are always I feel, the ones that you you see the most of is the loud people that are trying to get a lot of traction, whatever. They maybe they have a new album coming out. Maybe they're just a normal person. Maybe they're a journalist. Mm-hmm. There really is no set way for for anything now and for dealing anything. We're in this wild west of digital interaction. What is right and what is wrong what are we comfortable with and it's been a a greater schism has been brought to us through our culture because of politics Mm -hmm. and thinking back to like the the election and that that whole summer of 2016 everyone wants to talk about the election but really that summer leading up to it while it was happening i think was the angriest time that i ever remember in my entire life even more so than after 9-11 happened and all that and the, the example that I always use is that the moment that we entered into an alternate reality is when those clown sightings started happening. Do you remember that? Vaguely, yeah. When there was clown sightings every single week and people were freaking out about yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's almost like 
the, the, of course there's going to be people that are copycats or just trying to be funny or something like that. But I felt, I felt like really that was a symptom that we started losing our shirt mm. and we jumped the shark in America and we kind of lost our minds. How can we come back from that? How can we come back from this cultural divide? How can we come back from this red versus blue religion versus atheism? How can we heal that? How can we all become one again? And were we ever truly one? You know, I think the most important thing is you actually formulating that question. Because that is a nuanced question. I mean, that's a really good question to pose. And I think it's there's maybe a series of answers. And again, this is simply my perspective. Um, I think it's, again hinging on conversation. And if you recall, I wanted to maybe address this idea of conversation without crucifixion. Yeah. That if we don't have conversation, especially on difficult subjects, that is, can only go one way. It's either conversation or war. Because that's what usually happens. If we choose, in a conversation, we can choose to disagree and walk away not convincing each other, but willing to table the issue, or if we don't even talk about it, these feelings fester, and then the polarization you mentioned just naturally increases. And then you tweet about it. And then you tweet about it, and someone else who's feeling that anger tweets about it. So I think this conversation, it should be done online in a more charitable spirit, but I think it should be done among family members, I think we need to talk about the hot button subjects openly amongst each other, especially as musicians in our music community. You know, I'm not saying necessarily in a social media setting, but when we see each other at events or maybe even like do communal groups, like people get together for lunch and like, hey, these things are in our mind. I just need to air it out. I'm feeling frustrated. And I think back in the days before we had this instant spewing forth of information that when people had issues, they were able, they, they just talked it out more. Whether it was in a public forum, like on a street with other people, like in, in Europe, they still did that. Like in Romania, there would be people like in a public square. When I grew up, they would gather together in a group and have a subject, like a talk. And it wasn't, it, it could have been just like someone on a soapbox, but it was like a, a conversation in real time. Not the friendliest always, but it was a discussion where people got their voices heard. And I think that's what's missing. I think that would be a step forward, for sure. Um, I think also, man, it's just education. Because if we think we know the answer and we don't, we're going to guess. And especially in politically charged subjects, uh, if we don't understand geopolitics or we don't make an effort to look at geopolitics, to look at the bigger forces that are controlling I don't mean insidiously like conspiracy theories, but bigger forces that have impacted global oh, yeah. economy for the last hundred years. We're all sharing this planet. Right. And for me personally, if I can just make a quick little trip here. For sure. Is about four years ago, I went on a voyage of exploration because I realized that a lot of my fundamental assumptions about the world needed updating, uh, especially in, in, you know, ontology stuff like biology, chemistry, astronomy, physics, neuroscience. I've, I spent so much time in music that I kind of put those things in a back burner. So I kind of 
dove into the literature, a lot of, you know, books on biology. And I, by updating some of the holes in my knowledge of the real world, I came to realize how little I know and how much more I want to learn. And therefore, a lot of the things that I would get mad just on a physical level about if I saw something in a real world, I would realize, wait a minute, okay. Knowing more about the subject made me less quick to react instinctively. I would respond more. I would think about what I would say. And I think this willingness to be like, hey, what's this really about? You know, what, what is the American system of government really about? What is the Declaration of Independence about? What, is the, what are some of the premises that led to this country? What is the American ideal about? And looking at it, I think, can create a sense of empathy in our discussion and understanding why people even want to live here. It's almost become a dirty or taboo topic to mm -hmm. even mention the Declaration of Independence now mm. and, to, and to talk about some of the ideals that America were founded on. And as time has gone on and as I've gained experience in, my, in the world, you know, I'm 27 now, I just talking about earlier, I kind of seen the shift happen. And as our freedom has increased, we've never had more freedom and more knowledge. Mm -hmm. And there would be some people that would disagree with that and I would be open to hearing them out. But our willingness to talk and our willingness to listen have also kind of gone away within our communities. How can we heal that? How can we bridge that gap? I, I don't know if I can say how we as a culture can. I can say how we in our musical culture can. And I would okay. say... Um, as individuals. As individuals, because really... On a, on a bigger picture, if you look at culture, culture is a collection of, of various people living together. And the more each person chooses to be accountable for their lives, um, to grow and develop as humans, to just be better actors in the world, if everyone's on the same path, that creates a sense of accountability that doesn't necessarily have to be government-enforced but there's an, a, an ethic that comes out of that where we hold each other up and we hold each other accountable without overly policing our thoughts, where it becomes more of a goodwill towards your brother, if you will, through the actions that you do. So specifically, you know, one of our favorite public intellectuals, you know, Dr. Peterson talks about this in 12 mm -hmm. Rules for Life. And again, for everyone listening, I'm equally a fan of Peterson as I am of Sam Harris and I kind of find myself in the middle of their conversation because I think they both have important things to say but if you do I think especially as a younger person at least skim over or listen to the audiobook of 12 Rules for Life one of the themes in, in Dr. Peterson's approach is people taking control of their lives through small steps clean up your room oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's a volition it's that's like, my favorite one but that, that very thing is like you're saying, I'm not going to be victimized by, by what life has thrown at me. I'm going to recognize that that's a challenge, but I'm going to oppose that, fight it, embrace it, and overcome it through what I do each day. Whether it's if you have a tendency to be naturally overweight, to maybe change your diet, uh, if exercise, like recognize what evolution of biology bring to you, but resist it with positive stuff. 
And I think the baby self-awareness. Step, self-awareness. You know, I think the baby step of cleaning up your room gets the brain working in a new pathway, a new behavior where small incremental changes of one activity can lead to a bigger thing. And I think as a community where everyone is on this path of self-development for the benefit of the community can, can, can do no wrong. I mean, it sounds very ideal, but it can be done. We need each other. And there's no way to avoid that. Human beings are social creatures and we're living in a very isolated world now because of technology, because of the internet. It's a side effect of it. When I listen to someone like Jordan Peterson, uh, there's a lot of things that he's talked about that I've applied to my life. You know, like clean up your room, just like even a bad plan is still a plan. And I really like that a lot because a bad plan is still a plan. It's something because... It's important to to fail, and it's important to make mistakes, and that's one thing I don't think our culture talks about enough, or the American schooling system. I really felt kind of chewed up and spit out by the education system where I was from in Maine. I just never really was a strong test taker, and I wasn't very interested in in school. All All my teachers liked me, and they could tell I was interested in intellectual ideas and things of that nature. But I really think that something has to be done more about education and like early development and how we kind of see the world. Because uh, the children of today will be the rulers of the world tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, you know, I was, I was straight up, I was a D student all through school. It was down to like the last week of school and I was getting in trouble for not having assignments in. They were like, you're not going to graduate. You're not going to do all this. And it just wasn't for me, but anytime there was something like extracurricular that I could do where I was doing something, mm-hmm. like I took a photography class. I was, I was way more interested in the arts. Right. So I wasn't like a good like painter or drawer or anything like that, but I was always interested in music, interested in ideas. I felt just kind of left out in the cold because there was this idea of standardized testing. And with standardized testing, like I, I just never fit into that, that culture, that kind of landscape. It was like the school gets more money, whatever. And I understand that. I'm all, I'm all for that. But I think we're really doing kids a disservice today by not having them try a bunch of different stuff, mm-hmm. seeing what they naturally gravitate towards, and letting them fail letting them go through it because you're not going to be a pro when you first try something. You're not going to win every single baseball game and you got to figure out what you did for that situation to not become successful or however you want to look at it. Mm -hmm. One of my greatest mentors, his name was Gil, um, Gil Buckley. I worked for him at this place called BEK. It was my first sales job. And I should have been fired from this job 9,000 times over. I was a rookie salesman. Up until that point, I had worked a lot at, um, at various like retail places. You know, I worked at a grocery store as a bottle clerk. Mm-hmm. Like I worked at uh, Staples. I worked at all kinds of places like that. But Gil, he always gave me the chance to fail. And he always, after, after I would just screw something up horrendously, he would say, fail up. Every single time. It was just, fail up. That's a good boss. Yeah. He was a great boss. He was the greatest leader I've ever met. Mm. There's something to be said also for good leadership. 
I'm starting to ramble here and just go off on a tangent, but as a leader, I feel you have to be very fair with everyone that you're, you're dealing with and have a context of situation of this person's personality, how they see the world and how can you reach them? How can you reach them if they disagree or they don't understand what you're saying? What are your thoughts on something like that? As far as communicating as a leader to someone who may not be willing to accept your leading or, or overall communicating as a leader more effectively? More effectively. If someone is perhaps ignorant to a situation. Well, I would say first of all that the way you would approach a person has a lot to do with it. As your boss, Beck, would probably did, he, he, re he recognized that you failed to, to you, know, you missed the mark to a certain point, but he saw the potential in you and encouraged you to, hey, keep going, make it big. Like, and that's the same thing like musically. Like if somebody messes up on stage, my philosophy is that if I'm in charge of a gig, if somebody I hire messes up, if they mess up or fail because they're so into the music, and they have a brain fart, that's way different than somebody messing up because they're not prepared. Sure. So you, I'm, I'm willing to oversee that because they're making a genuine effort. They're so enraptured by the moment that they have a flub. That's totally yeah. different. Oh, yeah. So I would say uh, the tone that a leader would have, of, you know, always being, remember that these people don't work for you. They're working with you. And thankfully, in the last few years, I've had a chance to be a band leader in, in different settings and do some recording projects. And as long as you realize that, hey, you guys are all working together in for that time being when you are the leader, you have certain responsibilities, but you're also accountable for a product. So, in, you know, I would say set clear expectations. Make sure that the people understand those expectations and have some kind of accountability. And uh, if in a musical setting, if you set those expectations and the people don't meet it, let's say that you have a gig and you send everybody a Dropbox folder like we all do with charts and MP3s, and everybody's had the same amount of time to learn the tunes, and they show up for the gig and everyone except one person's prepared, well, you know, everyone is on the same level of opportunity with the information from the get-go, but one person is not there at the end of the... So I would be less likely to hire that person for a gig in the future because, hey, I've given you all this ahead of time. It's on you. It's your responsibility to learn it. Individual responsibility. So therefore, as a leader, though, the proper way would be is after the gig, privately, not enraged, even though I may be mad at the time. Sure. Or pissed or cussing. Like, take a second, a day or two later, call them, preferably face-to-face -face if you can, and be like, hey, listen, I set the bar. You didn't meet it you know, what happened. And then if and then if there was clearly like an act of negligence, then just don't hire them again. Yeah. Or set the bar lower or be like hire them for another project where they may be better. But I think it would, as a leader, just clear expectations and, and a sense of family like is deeply important. Like the people that you're working with, you're not their boss. You're in this team and for that season, if you're the leader, in air quotes, you have the role of guiding everyone towards a common vision. Community heals, yes. is what you're saying. Absolutely. We all have to work together. And I'm really optimistic about the power of the internet. 
-hmm. and the growing pains that we're experiencing, because that's really what it is. These are just growing pains. Humanity is going through its rebellious teenage years right now, where we don't want to listen to our mom and dad, and we know everything. Again, I think it's because of the fact that we have all of this knowledge, but maybe lack of context or lack of experience. Mm -hmm. I truly believe that as time goes on, these wounds will heal. It's taking a step in that direction. And I really am looking forward to, I don't know, 10, 15 years from now when we do have more context. Because really, we are the first people that ever have the experience of being able to talk to anybody at any time about anything we want. What are some ways that you mentally or emotionally prepare yourself for dealing with something like that? Is there anything in particular that you do? You're like past 9 p.m. I don't have my phone out or I don't go on the internet or anything like that? You know, that's a really great question. I think for myself personally, especially on weekends if I'm not gigging, um, I may just turn the phone off when I go to sleep or after 9 or 10 p.m. uh, Simply just to not check for notifications because it's really not that important. Uh, One thing I started doing actively recently to help my overall frame of mind is to actively meditate with a 10% Happier app by Dan Harris. Oh yeah. Which is the best Christmas present I ever bought for myself. Um, I think meditation in and of itself is a very good way for someone to examine themselves and learn more about themselves in a friendly way and also that can hopefully make you better towards the people around you. Um, I'm not a meditation expert, but I know enough from everything, all the podcasts I heard about it, from reading about it, from practice, that it is a very psychologically healthy way of looking at yourself and then what you learn, applying it to yourself. So it's almost like you're your own psychoanalyst to some degree. And... um, that would be, a, that's a, you're oftentimes coming from a quiet place to the busy noise of the internet around you. And the, more the, polarization. I mean, honestly, though, like the reason I really wanted to dive deeper into it, because a couple of my favorite public thinkers now, Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote Sapiens and 21st, 21 Lessons for 21st Century, and Sam Harris and other people are active meditators. And I would see that their course of thought has such a clarity when they were addressing, they were so focused and so specific that I'm like, how are they able to communicate this way? And I think the practice of meditation, and I'm, and I'm saying not a sectarian or a Buddhist or a specific religious meditation, but the act itself is almost like the thinking mind examining itself, recognizing the craziness, not trying to stop the noise, but developing an attitude of friendliness towards the noise in your head. Noticing it's there. Noticing the noise and also distancing your, uh, yourself away from negative emotions by embracing them rather than running away from them. Fear, feeling the fear. Where do you feel the fear? Is it in your chest? Where do you feel the anger? Is it in your head? So these emotions, rather than becoming these paralyzing demons, are just biological algorithms that occur in a human body and you're facing them in a real way. Well, I think that's the perfect, uh, perfect way to end it. I have a quote here that I want to read because I thought it would be, uh, be a good way to, uh, to close it out. 
When I was a boy and I would see scary things on the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find the people that are helping. That was Mr. Rogers. Val, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah.